This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Eye on Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now, your host, Jessica Clement. Welcome to Eye on Washington. I'm your host, Jessica Clement, and I am joined today by Steve Lankhart, Executive Director for NEFI, the National Federation of Federal Employees. It is great to see you again, Steve. Thanks, Jess. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for joining me for the second episode of Eye on Washington. Before we talk about all the things Nephi is working on, since this is only my second show, I wanted to take a few seconds to reintroduce myself and the show to our audience. A lobbyist by trade, I spent over 15 years advocating for the federal community, most recently at NARF. I've since left the federal employee world for the travel industry, but when Federal News Network offered me the opportunity to be a voice for the federal community, I couldn't say no. So every month, Eye on Washington takes a look at federal employee and retiree policy initiatives in Washington. We'll examine the proposals Congress, the administration, and agencies are considering and which ones have a possibility to become reality. That's enough about me. Steve, let's dive in. You and I have known each other for a really long time, longer than sometimes I'd like to admit. You've held a variety of roles in the federal world, right? At the risk of giving the audience the wrong impression, you've really gotten around. I mean, just quite frankly, from Hill staff, career SES, political appointee, federal COO, now you're in the union world. But as you and I talked about prior to the show, like not everyone knows who you are, what Nephi works on, where Nephi fits in the federal employee world. So why why do you think that is? Well, Jess, first of all, um, I want to say thank you for having me as your second inaugural guest. Um, I've been in the long shadow of the great John Hatton of NARF for a long time, <laughs> who was your first guest. I was hoping this would be my debut to finally get ahead of John, but no, I'm number two. Uh, but there's there's no uh, um, there's nothing wrong with losing to the best. So uh, so thank because you. he learned from the best, right? That's <laughs> he did learn from the he best. Learned That's from the true. best. Yeah. So thank you for eventually having me on your show. Uh, it is an honor to be here. Uh, so the unions, um, the federal unions, are a very um, kind of its own uh, enigma. Um, we're different from big labor in the sense that uh, we can't strike like big labor, and we can't bargain over pay or benefits. We have to do that through the Congress. Um, but so we're part of that federal community that um, we're very powerful, if you mind me to be perfectly candid with you. Uh, we've been around for a long time and we're going to be around for a long time, regardless of how some people uh, in in this town may not want us around. Um, so it's, it's one of those organizations, one of those communities that kind of flies under the radar um, because we're not really meant to be in the spotlight, our members are supposed to be in the spotlight, the people who work for um, the taxpayer every day, the people who run the government and do the hard work, they're the ones that are supposed to be in the spotlight. So I doubt we'll ever be you know, a, a household name, but we're kind of this um, consistent flow of energy that's that's um, got its um, fingers in everything in this town. Now, you made it clear you are not John, right? Okay, but let's talk a little bit about who you are. You've held multiple roles. You worked on the Hill. You worked in the administration, career, political. Let's talk about your MSPB background for a little bit because that's how you and I met. That's how we know each other. Tell us about what it was like to work at MSPB and what you did there. So uh, the Merit Systems Protection Board um, is a small agency. It's a couple hundred people, and it's responsible for oversight, really, of the management practices of 
um, the federal government. And it also adjudicates um, cases between uh, federal employees and managers for disciplinary actions or for um, conduct actions or um, sometimes if you're denied a job or promotion, et cetera. So um, it was it was definitely uh, – it was my privilege to be the executive director of NEFI um, um, back from 2010 to 2013. Um, it was a very interesting place. Um, if you – you know, again, I, I served as an executive director. I served under the chairman at the time, and um, so I was effectively the chief operating officer of the agency. So, if you want to be, if you want pressure, try being the chief operating officer of an agency of 200 federal labor attorneys underneath <laughs> you, and see how easy it is to, uh, you know, try to try to govern that group. But um, it was a fantastic office, full of fantastic people, very very smart people, um, and uh, being a part of that was fantastic um, in terms of the adjudication, but also assisting adjudication efforts. I didn't adjudicate myself. I'm not an attorney, but uh, but also in terms of our other functions, which is um, doing our government-wide studies that helps management, uh, OPM, OMB, um, and agencies develop good practices in government, um, hiring, um, um, performance evaluations, terminations, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, also uh, oversighting OPM, which most people don't know that MSPB has a responsibility of uh, providing oversight of OPM for their more significant actions. I feel like we could probably devote an entire half an hour show to oversight of OPM and the things MSPB can do in that realm. If the listener can stay if awake. If the listener can stay awake for, for 30 minutes. Let's, uh, let's hit uh, pause on that for the time being and maybe reconsider it for the future. So you left MSPB. You've been in the union world for a little bit. I think when the average federal employee, federal manager, career, political, even the administration, they think about the federal unions, they think about AFGE, NTU, right? So tell us a little bit about NEFI, I would say a lesser known federal union, who you represent, who you're affiliated with. Like, let's 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 pump up the union a little bit. Okay, so... Uh, uh, NEFI um, is part of the Machinist Union, okay. and the Machinist Union um, has uh, close to a million members, um, and we uh, benefit from that relationship tremendously. Um, they have a great legislative department, a great organizing department, um, but most of the machinists are private sector uh, in- employees, and we're the we're kind of the federal employee arm, if you will. Um, of the Machinist Union. And we represent uh, federal workers, the Department of Defense, Veterans Affairs, um, Interior, USDA, uh, U.S. Forest Service, uh, State Department. Uh, interestingly enough, if you have a U.S. passport, that U.S. passport has passed through the hands of an FE member mm. because we're in charge of making sure um, uh, that the integrity of U.S. passports Just is, speaking to my travel heart right now, aren't you? Right to your travel heart. So if you've had a passport, it's been physically handled by an FE member. So um, that's kind of a, a nice claim to fame for us. And um, in a whole host of other uh, agencies and departments out there, uh, we, were some, we represent about 110,000 uh, federal employees. Um, and uh, so we're um, – you know, we, we're shoulder to shoulder with the other unions, and um, you know, we we uh, disagree every once in a while on some things. But ninety nine percent of the things that we align with, um, we're with the rest of federal labor, and um, it's a great position to be in. We have a great coalition, a very strong coalition of nephew and other um, labor partners uh, to take care of federal employees. Great, hundred and ten thousand members, nothing to scoff at there. So. Steve and I want to take this opportunity to kind of debunk some myths that exist with the federal community, federal unions, things that I would hear all the time at NARF, 
not having worked for a federal union. You know, I'd go in for a Hill meeting and I'd talk about NARF priorities um, and nothing was more irritating than that first question out of the Hill staffer's mouth being is, where do the unions stand on this? Um, happened happened to me a lot. So I know a lot about union priorities as well as, as knowing that was going to question I was going to get. But I think there is a lot, much like the entire federal community, right? Pay and benefits. There's a lot of misinformation out there that is, you know, purported sometimes on the Hill to weaken the power of the union. So let's take uh, let's take some time to debunk that, right? I want to talk about first why the federal government has unions to begin with. Like you already mentioned, for the most part, you cannot bargain over pay and benefits. Those are government-wide and decided by Congress. Some feds are paid by the taxpayers to do union work. It's called official time. That's gotten a ton of attention on Capitol Hill over the last 10 or so years. And justifiably or not, the unions are frequently cited as a hindrance to progress. So tell me, why do you exist? So, it's a great, fantastic question. A lot of people really don't understand um, what is the point of this since we can't strike and we can't you know, bargain over our pay and benefits. We do lobby Congress for, for those things, but we don't um, uh, bargain off of them. Um, so um, the, like any large organization, the federal government is no different from any private sector industry is, is you learn from your mistakes. And um, after um, you know a couple of wars that this country has been through and as a civil workforce in the federal government, there's a demand to have it grow. Um, there were a lot of questions about working conditions and uh, even pay um, and uh, hiring and terminating and disciplining to make sure that there are some rules involved. And that's really where the unions got their start is to make sure that those things that governed employment and governed people's career and, and governed people in positions of trust on behalf of the taxpayer, um, that there was uh, somebody looking out for them in terms of their working conditions and um, some of the workforce uh, policies that affect them. One of the biggest misconceptions I think of federal unions is they – most people think that we're running around all day long um, promoting unions, organizing, um, you know, representing members and so forth. And we do do all that. But, but in terms of our lobbying, um, most – probably 70 percent of the lobbying that we do on Capitol Hill is really to assist um, and improve the agencies and programs that our members work at. Uh, it's really not um, about pay or benefits or you know uh, collective bargaining stuff or anything like that. It really is our members come to us saying, "Hey, I work at this program at DoD or I work at a VA hospital. Um, I'm a wildland firefighter. Um, things aren't so good where I'm at. We have some problems with um, you know work-life balance and um, there's um, you know maltreatment to uh, patients. And we you know we want something corrected. We want more oversight. We want more money. We need more FTE." And it's our job to take uh, um, FTE, meaning uh, people, it's our job to take those messages to Capitol Hill and improve um, those agencies and those programs uh, on behalf of the people that they serve. So it, a lot of the lobbying that we do is really, you know, I'll say a selfless lobbying, even though we're mm-hmm. doing it on behalf of our members and that's what they pay us to do. It really is because our members are interested in improving the places where they work and, and that means service to um, the American people. So. Um, that is one thing that we spend a tremendous amount of time, and it's why when you go up to the Hill and um, if you try to change or introduce something new, they're curious to know what the unions say, not specifically because we're the unions, but because we're very, very dialed into those agencies and those programs. And we know where a lot of the trouble spots are, and we know the history. So we're often 
um, um, counseled uh, from the Hill for those kinds of things. I feel like you and I could probably have a debate about that for another 30 minutes yeah, as we well. Talk forever. Um, talk a little bit about how you are received as a union on Capitol Hill, the difference between walking into a member of Congress who sits on your committees of jurisdiction versus your average Republican, average Democrat um, offices. What What's the Hill look like for federal unions these days? So it's a mix, um, it, and I think it's reflective of um, how the Hill looks for everyone else. Um, obviously, labor is more um, uh, gets more attention from Democrats than um, from Republicans, but we do have a pretty wide selection of um, Republicans who work with in different parts um, of um, of the Congress and different agencies, or I'm sorry, different committees. Um, so, and we hold those those relationships. Of course, we you know those are very important to us on the Republican side as well too. Um, so, but it's like anything else. Even with Democrats, you know, we have to go in there and remind them why unions are here, what we're doing, what our members do, and what's important to, you know, the taxpayer and, and, and our mission as well, too. So, um, but even for those um, Republicans that don't like unions at all, um, there are there are some that that you know ideologically we sit on a polar opposite side. Um, but because there's a local in their district, or there's a facility, or a uh, you know, or, or a military base in their district, mm-hmm. we we work with them extremely well on those particular issues. And then when they need to politically express themselves differently, we we let them do that. Right, and of course, everyone wants government to run efficiently. Right, we can have conversations about what that looks like, but at the end of the day, it benefits everyone when government runs efficiently. With that, we are going to take a break. I am Jessica Clement, and I am talking with Steve Lankhart, Executive Director of the National Federation of Federal Employees. You are listening to Eye on Washington on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Eye on Washington on Federal News Network. I am your host, Jessica Clement, and I am joined today by Steve Lankhart. Executive Director of NEFI, the National Federation of Federal Employees. We spent some time talking about the Hill. Let's talk about politics, everybody's favorite topic. We are in a 24-7 news cycle. Someone somewhere is always campaigning. Um, and over the last few years, we heard a lot of presidential candidates talk about what they would do if a federal employee did not fall in line with their directive, Right how they would get rid of everyone, anyone who didn't follow the things that their administration wanted to do, how federal employees work for the president, not the American people. I mean, I've heard that just this year. It's become kind of common in American politics over the last several years. I know that's not true, and you know that's not true. But I'd say the average American probably does not understand that distinction, right? Why doesn't federal employee work for the president? You know, they're, they're paid for by the tax dollars. So I want to unpack that a little bit. Let's start by reviewing the difference between the roughly 2 million federal employees who work in career non-political positions and those employees who turn over with every presidential election, your political appointees. Steve, could you break that down for our listeners a little bit? Explain to us, you've worked in both roles. Yeah. Explain to us the difference between when you are a GS-14 or 15 and when you are appointed by the president. Sure. So um, of those 2 million federal 
um, employees that we have um, working right now. Um, every um, presidential administration, about four or 5,000 employees come in um, under um, um, a hiring authority that allows the president to bring on um, some of their top-level people and as well as some policy advisors that are placed throughout the government. And their mission is to help the president and the White House uh, administer their policies throughout the government. Um, the Beyond that um, are federal employees who are, work for the federal government and not the president of the United States. And the difference in that, why that's important, is because, you know, can you imagine that every 48 years we would have an entire changeover of the federal government? Would be this country. Four to eight, four not to 48, eight. Just, to, just to be clear for our listeners. Every four to eight years, can you imagine two-plus million people turning over? Be, be quite the onboarding costs, don't you think? It, it would be absolute chaos. And the, the job of the career people is to um, keep the government going no matter what happens um, uh, with the White House, um, including transfer of powers or if uh, something happens to a president where they're no longer to serve or uh, any number of other things that come up. Um, you need to have those people who, who their jobs every day shouldn't be, shouldn't be directly affected by what's going on in the White House. Um, 99.999% of what the government does every day should be um, routine. Um, watching the borders and you know um, drawing up plans and I was going to say, give us some and, examples of what NEFI members do that happen every day, regardless of who's sitting in the White House. So every day um, we're seeing patients at the VA, doctors and nurses mm-hmm. and other practitioners in the VA. We're um, all over the country and the world with the Department of Defense, and we're working on um, planes, ships, tanks other weapon systems, um, as well as doing uh, routine maintenance on a lot of the um, weapons systems that we have in the country. Uh, we have wildland firefighters who are out there every single day, um, not only fighting fires, but also responding to um, car crashes and um, helicopter rescues for people who get in trouble in remote places. We Things have, that you don't really think about until you need it, right? You, and you want them to be there if you ever are faced with a situation where you are, say, stuck in a wildfire. That's just it. And like the American people themselves, they don't want to be reminded of the government every day in their lives. Nobody wants to see and have a palpable presence of government um, in your life every single day. Um, You want to know they're there. You want to know the people are doing their jobs. Um, But if we had a government that was so strong and directly impacting people's lives every day, we would get pretty sick of it. Nobody wants to be told what to do or have someone looking over their shoulder. So those are the two million people that are doing their job, and when they do it well, the rest of America doesn't really even know they're doing their jobs. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it should be. It's the way it should be. And then we also have those four to 5,000 that you mentioned that change over with the administration. So when you hear these presidential candidates talk about how the federal workforce works for them, mm, actually, no, those four to 5,000 people do. Thanks. That's right. right. And talk a little bit about how those two positions work with one another? So ideally, um, they work well. And in most situations, I think um, over the many decades, we've had this kind of system. It's worked pretty well. Um, so it's it goes a lot like this. You have your senior um, um, career federal employees, mid-level and senior career federal employees, meet with the incoming administration, uh, meet with the new secretary, deputy secretary, the undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, policy advisors, and so forth. And your job is to tell them, uh, as a career person, um, how can I help you? How can I serve you? 
what are your priorities and let's get that done. But it's also my job as a career person to tell you how not to break the law, how to be ethical, um, and how to be the most efficient and effective you can be. Knowing that a lot of these people who come in under political appointments, this is the first time some of them have never led anything before in their lives. Uh, some of them have never been in the federal government before. And that is a lot to learn in a short period of time if you're coming in here as a political appointee. Um, for those who have been through this before, even they need help um, finding, mm-hmm. you know, where's my people, where's my money, where's my stuff, is the three things every good COO asks themselves. Were you um, one of those good COOs? I was did you an ask yourself that? I, I did. I did every day all the time and I took direct responsibility for the people, money and stuff and whether uh, things things went well, well, I would celebrate my team. If, if things went bad, I would take full responsibility for it and that's also the job of a good COO. Um, so the, um, the job of the career staff is to be available to those political appointees. Um, knowing that those political appointees are also going to be gone, but somewhere between four and eight years, um, they will all turn over. Isn't the average life of a political appointee about 18 months, 18 um, to 24 months? I think I've seen that number before, yeah. yes. I think it's you know 18 months to a couple of years. If you have a president with two terms in a row, uh, you may get people six, seven, and rarely eight years. Yeah. Uh, but you think about that th- for a second. What other major organization in the world um, takes its top, you know, three or four levels of its executives? You know, the mm-hmm. secretary and deputy secretary, which is like a COO and you know, deputy COO and so forth, changes them out every couple of years, and that um, organization is supposed to keep running as if they never left. Right. And we do that successfully very well. Um, it, it having political appointees is a good thing for an agency. Um, even though I think we should probably cut the number of um, political appointees about half. I think about 2,500 is good enough because yep. I think there's a lot of you know what they call Schedule C, which is lower-level um, political appointees we just don't need. Um, it's just too many. Uh, there's too many to hustle in and hustle out. Um, but the system works pretty well because it is it, – that's what allows the president to put um, their policies and procedures, their priorities in place in those agencies. And that's – and without it, I think – um, it would be very frustrating for people in those department and in agencies to take orders um, from the White House. I couldn't agree with you more, but I would argue you and I are are biased, and we also have the benefit of information. We know how these things work. We've worked in it for a long time. We have seen Congress and the administration over the last few years work to politicize the federal government to ways that make people like you and I very, very nervous. But I think some of that rhetoric has resonated with the American people, right? First, we had the Holman rule come back, which said Congress can reduce the salary of any federal employee they want to, to by as much as they want down to $1. Congress does not have the power to fire federal employees, but it has the power to reduce their salaries if they see fit. That rule came back a few years ago. Now we're faced with Schedule F, which was a Trump administration initiative that – was about to take hold before that administration came to a close. Um, and I think that you and I could have a very healthy debate with the folks on the Hill and the folks in the administration and in the think tanks who want to give Congress and the president more authority to play politics with the federal workforce. But they're not sitting here today. You are. So tell me why that's bad. So we'll start with the Holman Rule. The Holman Rule um, actually goes back a couple of decades, either to the 60s or the 70s, and uh, it's never been acted upon. It was um, by some uh, representative in the House. Maybe his name was Holman. I don't know. Um, and <laughs> imagine that. Imagine that. They do like to name things after themselves. But 
essentially allows the Congress um, to you know pass a law. The House and Senate would have to agree. Um, but then they can zero on in any single particular employee, mention them by name if they want mm-hmm. to, and zero out their salary. Um, there's no legitimate business interest on that. Um, I think that if you know the president and the you know towering levels of supervisors above above a particular employee um, hasn't taken action against this employee, it's not the jurisdiction of the Congress to focus in on one person. And if Q- only Congress had better things to do with its time. Well, well, luckily they have a lot of free time, um, not much, especially not, right now. Not, not, not is, much going on right now. Not right, yeah, there is some free time. Uh, but can you imagine if you know you gave the authority over your wages to some neighbor that doesn't like you, or you know somebody in your life that um, has it in for you and you don't care for? It? Can you imagine giving that person power and saying, "Hey, how much? I'm going to work really, really hard, but you should decide how much I make." And it, it's it's the whole mineral is nothing. It attracts people who have an interest, I think, in corrupting the federal government and you know abuse of power and so forth to those who um, don't have an interest in those kinds of activities. I don't think Holman is something they take seriously. So I think you could argue that the very people saying there are too much corruption in the federal workforce are, in fact, corrupting the federal workforce. Is that what you're saying? I am exactly saying that. So, uh, And thank you for saying that so eloquently. So in, in the, you know, the, the federal government, in, in the executive branch in particular, um, these are all positions of trust. Um, they've been hired to work on behalf of the American taxpayer um, to do the things that the agency and the missions of the agencies have been, um, you know, consecrated through uh, Congress, through authorizations, through appropriations, through a host of other laws and, and directives. Um, to politicize that further uh, by bringing in uh, political appointees that um, don't report to anybody, um, such as what you mentioned, Schedule F before, essentially that's bringing in political appointees that don't report to anybody. Um, they're at will. They're easily corruptible. Um, they're basically spies for you know whoever wants to get somebody in government, trying to influence government from the inside. And they're doing it as career feds, right? They, they'll be doing it as career, career feds, feds, which is the difference. When a president leaves, those people would stay behind. I feel like this is the last – the Schedule F stuff was the last stuff I worked on at NARF right before I left. So tell me, where is that now? This is obviously a different administration that's not focused on moving that, but are there members of Congress who are? There are certain members of Congress um, who are going to try for it again for something like Schedule F. Um, they won't give up. And again, it's polit- people who are have an interest in corrupting or creating a corruption-friendly environment. Those are the only two kinds of people that would be interested in, in this kind of a hiring scheme. Well, I wish we had more time to keep going down this path, but alas... We have reached the end of this episode. I would like to thank my guest today, Steve Lankhart, Executive Director of NEFI, the National Federation of Federal Employees. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. I am Jessica Clement, and you are listening to Eye on Washington on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Eye on Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and all of our past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.